Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. In today's podcast, we hear from Dr. Christine Sertam, a renowned Canadian professor of mathematics at the University of Ottawa. Chris walks us through the recommendations from a report she wrote with Dr. Joe Bowler and co-authors from Stanford University in California. Their report, called We're In This Together, Supporting High-Quality Math Teaching in Uncertain Times, provided recommendations for math teachers heading back to school in September 2020, after the four-month disruption caused by the pandemic. None of us could have imagined that the world would be in a similar situation 12 months later. And yet, here we are. This is an opportunity to hear Chris's thinking on approaches to supporting our students and our math teachers as they head back to in-class learning environments this coming year. Hi, Chris. It is wonderful to have you here on the Knowledge Hook podcast. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here, Jen. Chris, you are a longtime colleague and friend, and you have been doing incredible work at the University of Ottawa in mathematics, mathematics education, and you are well-known across Canada. Tell us a little bit about the work that you've been focusing on over the last couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So one thing I've been doing over the past year, actually two years, has been working with the Ministry of Education in an advisory capacity. And sort of that started with uh, writing a background research report that reported on research in uh, teaching and learning. How is it that we learn new content, et cetera, to provide to the Ministry of Education before they actually wrote the elementary curriculum. And then during that uh, writing of the curriculum, I would meet with them once a week as an advisor. So it was very interesting to be playing that kind of a role. And, you know, similar to how you and I were talking, uh, there are different contexts, right? There's a university context that I sit in that has a certain timeline and kinds of demands, but a very different set of constraints and context at the Ministry of Education. And then this year, past year, was working with them as an advisor to the grade nine. So that's one area, but I also am involved in several research projects. One research project is actually connected to the teaching and learning of grade 11 and 12 mathematics. So quite often, teachers in elementary and early secondary are quite willing to try rich tasks and engage students in mathematical thinking and problem solving. But sometimes at grade 11 and 12, teachers might feel, oh, I have to kind of just focus on the skills. So we've been looking, I've been working with a professor of mathematics at Queen's, and we've been looking at what are some of the opportunities for teachers of grade 11 and 12 to engage in problem solving. And what are some of their challenges? So that's been another interesting thing. So lots of things going on, right? It's great to hear that summary, Chris. And I know our audience, lots of math teachers, lots of school principals, lots of district leaders from right across North America primarily. But I think that they would be very happy to know that math experts are sitting down with departments of education and ministries of education at the state level and at the provincial levels to really guide them in when they're looking at curriculum and thinking about making revisions. It's very reassuring to know that people like you are at the table to be providing that advice. And I also think it's super interesting that you're now looking at a research project 
with grade 11 and 12, those junior and senior years in high school where teachers have been teaching in a certain way for a long time and how do they open up their pedagogy to make it more inclusive and to make it more engaging for students, et cetera. I think it's important because I think quite often, you know, let's say grade seven and eight teachers are teaching to prepare students for the grade nine that those teachers once went to without recognizing that grade nine might have shift. And the same is true at the high school level, you know, grade 11 and 12, those teaching, as you say, juniors and seniors are preparing them for the university they went to. So that's why it's interesting working on this project with a math professor, not math education, but a math professor, because he really wants wants to see students opened up to think more broadly and develop problem-solving skills. When we think of improving outcomes for students, we know that there has to be a link between elementary schools and secondary schools and post-secondary education in math. And that whole look at how do we make sure that we're developing and helping teachers to help students develop those skills to be the problem solvers of the future. That's such important work. Mm -hmm. Really glad that you're working on that, Chris. Let's turn to the report. A year ago at this time, you and Joe Bowler from Stanford University, and actually two other co-authors, Tanya Lamar and Jennifer Langer Osuna, both from Stanford as well, you wrote a report, and that report was calling, we're in this together, supporting high-quality math teaching in uncertain times. And of course, at that period, many schools around the world had had their students out of school, potentially in virtual learning or some type of a hybrid learning, and teachers were heading back in September. And, you know, what was the impetus for that report? Why did you think it was so important to write it at the time? If we think back a year ago, I think that there were many concerns about what that September would be like. I mean, there might be this year as well. And I think that one of the concerns, whether it was virtually or in person, one of the concerns that I know I had and perhaps the other authors had was how can we maintain creating positive learning environments in mathematics in whether it's moving virtually or having students be socially distant. And for me, there was a bit of a fear, I guess, that by moving online, would we be turning to pedagogies where the teacher is more like the teacher at that chalkboard, telling the facts, practicing the skills, or all of the work that we've really already done with teachers and the kinds of things teachers are doing to engage students in mathematical thinking, having discussions amongst themselves, where would they sit if we move to those kinds of environments, whether it's where students have to sit six feet apart or students are working virtually. So I think it was kind of important to reiterate, you know, everything that we know about good sound teaching and learning and mathematics could still happen in these kinds of environments. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It was a challenge. I don't mean in writing the report, it's a challenge to teachers, isn't it? Um, they just finished one heck of a year and you know, any work that I've done with teachers, I was so pleasantly surprised to see some of the kinds of things that they did to really respect what they know about sound mathematics pedagogy. It was really refreshing. It's been an incredible journey. And I, I don't think any of us could have imagined that 12 months after that point, you know, we're still in massive disruption. And, you know, that report, it has been downloaded hundreds of times, thousands of times, actually. Why do you think there's been such an uptake for this particular report? Well, I think that 
many are really looking for, you know, how do we approach this? And, and I guess I would say particularly administrators, you know, how can they best support students and teachers in these different kinds of learning environments? They really want to find ways to be able to do that. In a sense, they kind of want to get it right. So I feel as though they're really looking for some advice in terms of what might this look like and ways that they can support their teachers to help to facilitate those kinds of things, whether it's kinds of technology they need to be able to have or professional development opportunities. And, you know, I think everybody really wants to do the best that they can. It's impressive, Chris, when we think of, I've talked to teachers and certainly to district administrators that, you know, they talk about the heroic efforts that teachers have made throughout this past year to really try to do the right things for kids. And one of the things that I liked about the report was that it was very simply formatted so that anyone had access to it and they could quickly get some pointers. You know, they were so overwhelmed with the task in front of them, teaching in an online environment and connecting with kids, et cetera. We wanted to make sure that the report didn't overwhelm them. It was easy to get at the information, et cetera. So partly that format and then partly the concept that I liked that you wove in was this idea of assets-based approach. Let's be thinking of the kids. We've heard lots of talk about learning loss, and we're certainly seeing some evidence that, of course, that has happened. But what we don't want is we don't want to give teachers the impression that the second they walk into school, there has to be a massive, my goodness, what has happened? And how do we make sure that we reteach the entire curriculum that the students haven't experienced in the same way that they would before? So why that assets-based approach? Well, I mean, I think that's critical. I mean, I think it's critical no matter what, but particularly in this pandemic, you know, we heard so much about, oh, the gaps they'll have, but really, you know, everybody would be having gaps if that's the way we want to look at it. I think it's really important that what we do is focus on each child and where they are in the learning process and then help to move that learning forward. Mm -hmm. You know, all too often when we teach, we have learning goals and targets, and those are fine, but I think they need to be kind of broad because by the end of a good lesson, not everybody is going to hit that target, right? To me, a successful lesson is if I look at where a student was at the beginning of the lesson and I've moved that thinking along, then that lesson has been a success. And you know, we really have to think about all of the kinds of experiences that students come to the table with, and we have to build on those experiences. And, you know, it could be that they've been helping with the baking of all that bread that seemed to get baked and, and, their, <laughs> and their measurement skills are really good. Or perhaps they've been working on Minecraft and they're developing their spatial reasoning. Like, I think that there are many opportunities where students were actually developing some skills when they were away from the classroom, that we really have to value and honor. And we have to listen to that. So when a student, let's say we have students playing a game, as a teacher, we need to listen. Um, maybe they're comparing numbers. Are they using a number line? Are they talking about good guys and bad guys with integers? Are they talk, drawing fraction circles? What models are they using? And then I, as a teacher, can build on that. So to be able to take what they know and can do, and then to be able to use that in my instruction, I think is really important. I like what you say about assets-based approach because you point out that it's not new. It's just even more important now than it was before. But this idea of taking, knowing where kids are and being able to move them and what they bring to the table, it's also linked very closely to the whole equity conversation. 
how do we make sure that the children from very different backgrounds, when they come into our classrooms or they come into our virtual classrooms, the, the background that they have and their knowledge and their understanding of the world is recognized and appreciated. And we use that to help them in their next steps, as opposed to having everyone have the exact same steps in the same way. Just that much more important now. Yeah, very much to be able to build on the knowledge that they bring to the classroom, which might be different than the teacher's knowledge and other students' knowledge. I mean, I think we have to think about assets-based models when we think about teachers as well. Absolutely. You know, I think sometimes we expect all teachers to be on the same page, but they bring different experiences with them and they're in different places. And so as we work with them as professional developers to help them recognize their knowledge and help to move it along, not that it's necessarily a continuum, but connect that to new ideas. Absolutely. Because when they have a place where they feel comfortable, where they're starting out, just like our students, they're more motivated to continue. They feel more confident to continue. And that progression helps happens both at the student level and with teachers as well. And all adults as leaders as well, right? Same idea. Take people where they are and like acknowledge the strengths that they have and then see where the next steps are. Yeah. And help to support them with resources that are meaningful to them to kind of move that thinking forward. Absolutely. Let's switch over to the report because the report was based on four pillars. There was a pillar of technology. There was a pillar of assessment. There was a pillar of curriculum and there was a pillar of pedagogy. Tell me first, the order of those areas was an interesting one. Why were they done in that particular order? Can you tell us the thinking of you and Joe Bowler and Tanya? I guess the one that I was really quite adamant about, I'll start with that one, was that assessment not be last. You know, I think all too often we picture assessment occurring at the end and assessment is part of that entire process. Assessment has to be embedded in instruction. We have to think about technology and how we use assessment. So that idea that assessment is a process, not an event, definitely meant it couldn't occur at the end because we need to get away from that. Mm -hmm. I think that technology probably came first because we sort of knew that that was kind of the big thing that everybody was thinking about uh, last summer, that, okay, many of these classes will need to be run in an online environment. and. You know, in terms of technology, we really want people who know the research and pedagogy to be designing those technology environments rather than the people who are experts in technology, if you know what I mean, or at least work together so that it doesn't become kind of a textbook on the screen or it's not a practice of rote learning, that we really take what we know about good teaching and learning and work that into the technology. Yeah, in terms of the order of the others, I mean, it was interesting. I think pedagogy could have gone anywhere because it's kind of like assessment. Those two go hand in hand. And the idea of curriculum really is about what are the important mathematical ideas that need to be taught. So I guess it was more kind of default, the technology and the assessment up front and then the others after that. It was an interesting order. And what I liked about the report, in each of those areas, the co-authors came up with a set of very simple recommendations. This is what every teacher should be thinking. Here are some things that they can be doing as they walk back into that classroom. Why was it important to include technology? You've alluded to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Why was that so important? 
Well, I think students live in a technological world and I think we'd be silly to ignore that, you know, the, the notion that leave your devices at home, put your devices away. No, it's a tool. It's a mathematical thinking tool. And how is it that we can harness this tool that students are quite well connected to and show them how they can use that to do some mathematics, think mathematically. So that's one piece. The other I think I did mention is we want to be sure that those people who are well-versed in what is good pedagogy and mathematics are part of that discussion of how can we harness technology to replicate some of the things. So, you know, it's very interesting to think about, um, and that's in some of our recommendations in technology, how do we use technology to make mathematical thinking visible, right? And students' mathematical thinking visible. How do we use technology to create those opportunities where students get together and collaborate and generate mathematical discourse? And so I think that those were important things to put in the report. And I know, again, in my work with teachers, I was really pleasantly surprised that that was the thing they were most worried about. How can I have an online class where I can have students working together, where I can go in and out of those breakout rooms and see their thinking, where I can have them use Jamboard so that we can do a virtual gallery walk. So it was nice to see that that's where teachers thinking was as well, you know, because it would kind of be easy to begin by turning the camera to the chalkboard and teaching, but it was nice to see that all of the pedagogies that they had incorporated, they were trying to think about how to do this using technology. It's incredible the leaps that our teachers made in moving to a full continuum of teachers that had a full continuum of comfort levels as far as using technology to very comfortable to not at all and not using it in the classroom to every teacher to some extent using technology. I mean, it's fascinating what the teachers were able to do and credit to all of them that made such huge efforts if you had to look at one of those recommendations under technology, which is the one that you'd highlight to say, yeah, that's the one that people should be thinking of going back into schools this year again? Yeah, you know, and I think this comes up time and again, it'll kind of be a bit of a mantra. <laughs> so I think I would pick T1, the utilize technology to make student thinking visible. Because I actually found some of the other recommendations in technology were connected to that, such as T3, facilitating gallery walks where students can see one another's thinking. And I guess that theme comes up in many of those silos or categories is really getting the student thinking on the table, because that's kind of the heart of what teaching is, is listening, responding to that student thinking, right? right? When I start off with new teacher candidates, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, I'll be really good as a teacher because I'm really good at telling and explaining. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not the heart of teaching. I don't say that. <laughs> they learn that over time. The heart of teaching is really, you know, setting things up. There's no doubt about it. So that thinking becomes visible and I can listen and respond to it as a teacher. You know, in a purposeful way, right? Yeah. That idea of thinking about, well, where is that student right now? And what are their next steps? And how do I make sure that they're moving along with that? <laughs> yeah. The second category was assessment. And you and I are huge proponents of assessment when it's done the right way. And uh, what I liked about the recommendations there was that there was a lot of talk about really making sure that it was teacher level assessment and formative assessment and teachers finding ways of making sure they knew where the students were so that they could adjust their instruction 
and provide the remediation support or the support to get that student to the next level of learning. Why was assessment so important in this report? Well, I mean, assessment is, to me, it's the heart of teaching. It's what we do every single minute or what we should be doing as teachers every minute, which is really listening to that student thinking and having it inform our instruction and having it help to inform the student in terms of what their next steps might be. I mean, we're doing it all the time. When we ask a question, we listen to them. When students are working in groups and we're wandering around or jumping into a breakout room, we're listening to that thinking and we're thinking about those kind of next steps. So providing those opportunities and then responding to what the students do with those opportunities, I think is really the heart of assessment. Is there one of the recommendations that you would like to highlight, Chris? Yeah, so I find that there's one that actually encompasses many of the other. So the first one really is provide assessment opportunities for students to show what they know and can do. And that kind of encompasses the others, such as the second, third, fourth, and fifth, actually, which are all about making student thinking visible, having students share their thinking with other students. But those multiple assessment opportunities, sometimes people think that, well, they're necessary because students need to show what they know and can do in different ways, or they need different ways of showing it. But it's also that mathematics itself requires different assessment tools because there are many different you know, even if, if I look at a curriculum and I look at the verbs in that curriculum, sometimes students calculate, sometimes they discuss, sometimes they communicate, sometimes they create a model. Those things cannot be measured by a paper and pencil test. Absolutely. So those are the kinds of things where I need a variety of assessment opportunities so I can see all of those mathematical actions that should be occurring in a classroom. And, you know, it's a harder thing to do, I think, online. We really have to think about how can I give those opportunities. But we've seen students making their own videos of themselves, solving a problem, right? Or creating a model or doing all kinds of things. And it's just been heartwarming to see teachers create some of those kinds of assessment opportunities where students talk through their thinking. The report gets at that concept of formative assessment cycle. Tell us a little bit about a formative assessment cycle. What are teachers doing when they're cycling through formative assessment? Yeah, well, definitely they're adapting their teaching, but they're also providing more opportunities for students to move their thinking forward. But they're also involving the student in that assessment process. And I think that's kind of critical piece um, where they can sit down and have a conversation with the student about what they're noticing and the student can dialogue about what the student thinks they're noticing about their learning. And I think in engaging the student in that assessment process helps to develop their kind of metacognition so that they're able to kind of self-assess and determine the kinds of things that they need. And it also helps to create that, you know, social emotional learning where the student sees themselves as mathematically capable. This teacher cares about what I'm thinking. This teacher wants to hear how I'm thinking. And um, that is critically important in terms of the student's own assessment of themselves as a mathematician. It's interesting because you've mentioned social emotional learning and, you know, what you were talking about there, that formative assessment and that interaction with the student builds the relationship with the student. So the social back and forth between a student and another student and a student teacher and that relationship as math learners together. And then the other thing that you mentioned is the idea of builds their self-confidence. 
And that's the emotional, as far as social emotional learning, where they're seeing themselves as math learners and confident math learners, and that they can do this and they can see a future for themselves in mathematics, whether it's everyday work in the different careers that would all have some aspect of mathematics and their personal life, their home life, et cetera. Or even, you know, even being mathematically literate to be able to read the newspaper, hear a news item and use their judgment as to whether, you know, this graph makes sense or whether the data they're reporting makes sense. And the world is so data driven these days that I think that we need to help to create critical consumers. But part of that, as you say, has to do with their confidence and that they see themselves as mathematically capable to do that. Yeah, exactly. We don't want them to, when they're faced with a graph or a data set, that they just skip over it because they feel they have no entry into it. Right. And so really, you're changing the quality of life of children as, and students as they get into their adult years. The way that they interact with the world can be fundamentally different based on their experience in our math classrooms. Yeah. And I mean, we do live in a society where math is often seen as one of those things that either you can do it or you can't. Uh, we look at the images of mathematicians that are around us, right? In some of the movies, in the way mathematicians are portrayed, they're usually socially awkward or all kinds of things. They're male. We need to change that. Those are not the only faces of mathematicians and those are not the only faces of mathematically competent. So it's a lot of work, but I think it's something we need to keep working at so that students see themselves as mathematically competent. The third category was curriculum. Tell us about why curriculum is important, uh, was important to this report. Yeah, well, the word curriculum is used in a variety of different ways. And I know that you've done work in the U.S., you've done work in Canada and many other places. Sometimes curriculum is used as a program of study, like put out by a publisher. Right. In Ontario, curriculum is a set of standards. Um, but there are many different ways the word is used. So what I kind of liked about the way we wrote that was we were really saying, Look at the mathematics that one has to teach. Don't think of it as a bunch of discrete things that we're going to check off. Let's look at what are the important mathematical ideas that are in this. And let's focus on what those important mathematical ideas are. And they're not to be taught as individual silos. They're really to be taught as connected ideas. Because we had a year where students kind of moved in and out of different worlds and different learning worlds. And so we need some connectivity so that they can actually see what are some of these important mathematical ideas. So, you know, I found the part that we talked about curriculum was really looking at it in that broadest sense in terms of what is the important content to be learned and what are ways that we can develop that around big mathematical ideas. I love that you highlighted those big ideas, Chris, because that's something, especially as teachers look back and are conscious of the fact that there may have been different levels of learning across the programs from the year before, for example, really trying to reassure teachers that they don't have to be going back and reteaching an entire set of standards. And I thank you for reminding us that the different contexts, the different global regions talk about standards, curriculum, lessons, uh, programs differently or use those terms somewhat interconnectedly. But really important, the teachers, the messaging that we're giving to teachers is that they don't have to go back and teach everything. They need to be thinking of what are the core foundational mathematical concepts. 
in each of those grade levels that would really be important for the child to be experiencing success in coming years. And that, in essence, are those big ideas, right? It's the big ideas, the core foundational concepts that are the ones that teachers need to be checking and making sure that students have those and helping them to develop them so that they can be successful. I think it's important that I also think sometimes teachers have difficulty extracting what those are Mm -hmm. um, through no fault of their own. But I really think working together with other teachers at the same grade level or a division level, you know, grades one to three, something like that, really to discuss what are the important things that, that we need to develop over these three years and how will we tackle that? I think it's hard sometimes to teachers of many curricula, particularly in elementary, that they have to kind of try to be, I'll say, covering. Yeah. And so working with their colleagues, I think, is critically important. And, you know, even having some outside expertise help them talk through some of that, I think, is key, too. And there's tools out there that can help them, Chris. And the group that I was, I'm working with, with Knowledge Hook, they actually acknowledge that Yeah, there's many elementary teachers that wouldn't know what those main core foundational concepts are. And that company went and got math experts from the different geographic areas to look at their jurisdiction's curriculum and say, what are those? Mm -hmm. And the tool is available. Teachers can just access it for no cost. And making those kinds of things available for teachers and for math consultants within districts, and then to give them time to be thinking about, well, what would that look like? And how would we make sure that we were knowing where students are on those core foundational concepts, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The last category was pedagogy. And, you know, when I think of the work that you've done, Chris, you worked with a school district in Ottawa, Canada that I worked with, and you did such good work with the teachers and with the math coaches to really talk about how should students be engaging in mathematics. And huge changes in practice. When I look over my career and I think about walking into math classrooms, the changes in how teaching and learning was taking place in the math classroom was probably the most obvious out of all the different subject areas. So I love the fact that the report ends on that. Why is pedagogy so important? Well, to me, the moves that a teacher makes are critical in terms of students' understanding. And, you know, that sounds quoting from somebody who says it's as simple and as complex as that, Um, because that's a simple thing to say that, you know, um, it's all about what the teacher does. But it's a very complex process for a teacher to do all the things that we've been talking about, right, to be paying attention to student thinking, to understand the curriculum in ways that help to support them, to know what some of those next steps might be for the student. So I think that being able to articulate some of the pedagogical moves that are important in teaching, I think was an important piece of writing that report and kind of taking away the idea that you have to cover all those skills. I mean, pedagogical moves such as let's engage students in a rich task that has multiple entry points. And maybe we need a timeout once in a while to practice some skills when we realize that. As opposed to, well, you're not ready for the task, you practice your skills and the rest of the class will do the rich task. So thinking about how a teacher skillfully does that is really important. And the teacher being able to recognize those kinds of things that they need to do. You mentioned something there when you were talking, Chris, you talked about the idea of having all students engaged in that rich task. 
and that the teacher will see that there's times that he or she needs to stop and do some indirect instruction with either a small group of kids or maybe the entire class. Let's do a little bit of skill development here. And I think that's something in the past. I think we made a mistake where we started to talk about rich tasks. We started to talk about three-part problem solving. And we talked so much about that that I think we gave teachers the impression that there wasn't a time for direct skill development and direct instruction. And I think we're getting that better now. It's really trying to make sure that everybody hears. It's not one or the other. It's you start with the big and you break it into small and vice versa at times, but it's not an either or. Yeah. You know, I often do family math nights with parents and, and I try to talk to them about, you know, because they, they hear things about what is this problem solving? You know, it's portrayed sometimes in the media as discovery math. And so my analogy or my metaphor for them is as parents, um, you and I have done this too. We are driving our youngsters around to hockey and soccer and ballet and piano and all of those things. And if we were driving them to these lessons and all that happened at these lessons is they practiced the scales on piano, but never actually played a song, or they stood at the bar in ballet and did the plies, but never actually did a dance or practiced dribbling the ball back and forth, but never actually played a game. They pretty soon would lose interest. But for a long time, that's what mathematics was. You never got to play the game. You just kept practicing the skills. And so at the same time, If we were to take them to soccer practice and the coach said, here's the ball, go play. I never did a timeout we need to practice. You as a parent would kind of get a bit fed up with that too. So it is that balance. But, you know, I find quite often we can practice the skills way too much and not give enough time for playing the game. So I tend to prefer it to be the other way around where we play the game and we do timeouts to practice some of the skills that we see might be needed. It's such a good analogy, Chris, because all of us as parents, though we've all lived those uh, activities, taking our kids from activity to activity. And yeah, we can all understand that. And I think teachers can understand that too. And then they get that sense of, yes, it's a balance and it's based on the needs of the kids and what's happening with that particular lesson. And it's a back and forth. Mm-hmm. Chris, last year was a very disrupted year. And did you see practices that, you know, when we, when we think of this report and, and the recommendations that you gave, very simple, concrete recommendations across those four areas, were there some practices in districts or in classrooms that you observed that were noteworthy? Very much. I mean, I think I've alluded to this a little bit. For instance, I was doing a lot of professional development with teachers. And of course, I'm doing it online. And so I need to find ways to make teacher thinking visible. But I also was teaching additional qualifications course with practicing teachers. And that was from last October until April. And what I found quite surprising was the kinds of things that they were doing in their classrooms to make sure that the students were engaged, to make sure that the students were working collaboratively, to find ways to share the student thinking. I was inspired by many of the kinds of things that they were doing. And I was only teaching online sort of once a week with them and and I was learning ideas. So the way that those teachers actually flipped what they felt, I could see what they valued in teaching by the way that they were trying to model that in an online environment. And I I was pleased to see the kinds of things that they were valuing about teaching. 
It'll be really interesting moving forward and assuming that more schools are back uh, with students being present in a school environment, that what teachers learned with technology and having to move virtually, that some of those practices will continue. You know, they've developed a whole new skill set and that some of the recommendations that you're talking about in this report are equally as important in an in-school environment, in an online environment, or in a hybrid. And it will be interesting to see how that moves back and forth, maybe with more fluidity than it would have before. I agree. I mean, another instance is I'm working with these grade 11 and 12 teachers, and we have regular focus groups once a month. Mm -hmm. And what really surprised me is that because they're in this online environment, they're no longer giving tests. Instead, they're conferencing with the students or the students are sharing their work in different ways. And they said, well, when we go back, I don't know why we would have tests. And that surprised me. So they were seeing that they're learning a lot more about the students' thinking by the kinds of assessment methods that they're using and that they really didn't see a need for paper and pencil tests that, you know, they were getting authentic assessment. So that was interesting. Also speaking with the, the math professor that I was speaking about, he's been teaching courses with, you know, 200, 400 people online. And he has found that the chat feature is wonderful because when a student has a question, they actually start answering their own. So the students are dialoguing between one another much more than they would in a large lecture hall. And so when he goes back to the lecture hall, he's probably going to run a little chat on the side so that they can communicate. So it's really interesting to see these things bubble up that will probably be part of new practices and why those things appeared important to people. It's fascinating to know that, you know, in these dire situations, teachers were able to adapt and flex. And like you said, and even if those teachers, those grade 11 teachers go back to having the occasional paper and pencil test, it's not the only way they'll be gathering information on student knowledge and competencies in mathematics. And just that move towards blended because they saw the power of it when they had no ability to use the other one. You know, suddenly those other methodologies came forward, they became comfortable with them. And you're right, you know, just by their own expression have said that they won't go back to using uniquely paper and pencil tests. Yeah, I mean, they really saw it as more authentic and they would use those words. So it's very interesting. I mean, I know we're painting, you know, pretty rosy picture of some of the things that happen because we also know that there are equity issues and there are students who, who fell through the cracks and there's still a lot of work to be done. So... Yeah, absolutely. And, and that kind of brings us just to kind of finish off, Chris, with looking forward. Is the report that we wrote, that you and the co-authors wrote a, a year ago, is it still relevant? Are those recommendations still relevant? You know, when you look through them, I read through them and I was very impressed that I think that they have stood the test of time. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, we're a group of four researchers. So, you know, we've done research, read the research. So most of those recommendations were based on research uh, around what is good teaching and learning look like. And I think those kinds of recommendations would last no matter what situation we're in. Um, some of them were particular to an online environment or whatever, but basically they were talking about what are the important components that we need in a mathematics class to develop students' mathematical understandings. I do think they go forward. What advice do you have to school principals, to 
school district leaders? How can they support their teachers going back into school in September? Some of them into a school situation in person, some of them still virtual, you know, a whole myriad across, uh, well, around the world for that matter. What advice do you have as far as creating a culture within their schools and within their jurisdictions of quality math instruction? Yeah, I mean, I think many of the things that we say make an important mathematics learning environment in the classroom are the same things that create a mathematics learning environment in a school for teachers. So that acid-based idea where, you know, as leaders, we need to accept where teachers are and pay attention to help them move forward. The idea of providing space to listen to their thinking, providing space for teachers to work together, I think is critical. In many of the projects I did this year where I worked with the same group of teachers over time, they appreciated having one another to talk through the ideas and to try out different ideas. Um, It wasn't so much me as the teacher, but it was the opportunity for them to share some of their struggles. So I think it's really important that leaders recognize making space for teachers to share their pedagogical and mathematical thinking as they move forward, because they're wrestling with both of those kinds of things. You know, just as we were talking about teachers coming up with what are the big ideas, they need people to talk to about those sorts of things. So you know, the kind of things we foster in the classroom, such as a culture where people are not afraid to take a risk, where students are not afraid to take a risk. We need to have that culture within the school so a teacher can try something out and know that it's okay if it doesn't work out. It's really great to hear that parallel that, you know, the kinds of things that we're encouraging math teachers to do with their students in their classroom were encouraging school leaders to be setting that culture and in their school for their teachers so that they can be experiencing and and almost modeling the kinds of things that they would want happening in their classroom as well. Exactly. We're all in a learning environment together and we're all in that learning stance and it's students and staff and leadership and we're all learning uh, for the betterment of those students. Yeah. Chris, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. And I know that the audience is uh, thrilled to hear your best advice. And uh, we will make sure that they have access to that report so that if they want an opportunity to take a closer look, that they can. And on behalf of the school district that I worked in, and uh, I know how much the province appreciated your incredible work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you and working with you. Take care, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Chris for joining our podcast today. What I like about Chris is that while she's an expert in mathematics, she's completely understandable to those of us who are not mathematicians. Her calm demeanor is reassuring to all of us. With her guidance, we leave the conversation with the impression that meaningful, engaging math instruction is doable by all teachers of math. If you enjoyed this discussion, you may want to check out the roundtable where Joe Bowler, Chris, and their co-authors talk about the report in detail. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal, linked in the description of this podcast. On our next episode to be released on October the 20th, I'll be talking to Dr. Kathy Williams, who along with Joe Bowler, is the co-founder of UQ. She'll be helping us to think about mathematics in a data-filled world. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.